Hi, I'm Jim Dennison. Sorry I can't be with you today in person at chapel. I miss you today. Sorry that I couldn't be there to be part of our worship together today. I'm actually today uh, getting on an airplane about the time you're meeting for chapel. I'm on my way down to Houston. I am meeting there with a, a group of pastors from all across the city of Houston uh, tonight. And again, two more groups on Monday and then coming back on Tuesday. Well, what I'm sharing with them tonight, a message I've been sharing with churches and with media uh, at great frequency in recent days and weeks, has to do with the latest book that I've written that just came out this week. Uh, it's called The Coming Tsunami. Uh, I believe that it describes uh, a rising tide of opposition that Christians have not faced in American history. And so I'm preaching that message in churches and in places, and I wanted to share that message with you today. What we're going to share today by virtue of video today as my message to you today is this message that I've been preaching in churches and sharing with Christian groups, with leadership groups, with organizations as well. I share it with you as my church family, as my faith community. Janet and I love you. We are so grateful to be part of our faith family together. I share it with you so you know what I'm sharing with other people, the urgency I believe is the case in our culture today, and also to ask you to join me in praying for the kind of awakening we need so desperately that this message describes. So we'll share with you this video as my message for today, but also as the message for what I believe Christians need to know so that we can respond redemptively in these days. Hope this message is helpful and encouraging to you today. We'll see you next week. God bless. So let me begin by unpacking the metaphor, if I could, that's behind the book and this conversation. On March 11, 2001, there was an underwater earthquake 45 miles off the coast of Japan. You couldn't see the underwater earthquake, obviously, but the massive tidal wave that it caused, the tsunami that resulted, killed nearly 16,000 people, caused $235 billion in damage. A tsunami is a tidal wave you can see caused by forces you can't. Could be an underwater volcano, it could be a meteor, it could be a mudslide, landslide. 80% of the time, it's an underwater earthquake. Well, I believe that there are four underwater earthquakes, as it were, cultural earthquakes, that are causing a rising tide of opposition to Christian faith and witness in America that we as American Christians have not seen before. But the good news is that God is still on his throne. He redeems all that he allows. And I believe he wants to redeem even these days for his glory and for our good. So the context for this biblically is in 1 Chronicles 12, where we read in verse 32 of the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Let's see if we can understand the times together. Let's unpack the issues, the challenges we face uh, that we find ourselves uh, facing today as followers of Christ. Then we'll pivot, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where we're told, now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And we'll look at ways that faith, hope, and love are the answer to the challenge that we face as followers of Christ. So as men of Issachar, let's understand the times just a bit, looking at four underwater earthquakes and then the tsunami that they are producing. The first of them, as I describe in the first part of the book, is an underwater earthquake that is a rejection of biblical truth. 92% of Americans say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. Saw a recent survey saying that 79% of Americans say it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're tolerant of others. Only 24% of Americans believe the Bible is the literal word of God. The percentage of Americans who say the Bible is myth has doubled in the last 20 years. Now, how do we get here? 
the long answer takes us back to Immanuel Kant in the 18th century and uh, Nietzsche and postmodern philosophers, all that. The short version is this. Your mind interprets your senses and the result for you is truth. My mind interprets my senses and the result is my truth. Your mind isn't mine. Your senses aren't mine. So there can be no such thing as absolute truth. That was Immanuel Kant's claim. It swept Europe back in the 18th century and from there across Western culture especially after World War II, when European scholars started coming to America, started studying their world, starts getting smaller. This idea starts being embraced in America as well. It's called postmodern relativism. The basic idea is you have your truth, I have my truth. There can be no such thing as objective truth. That's why in 2016, Oxford University Dictionary made post-truth their word of the year. It makes the Bible a diary of religious experience. You have no right to force your beliefs on me any more than I have a right to force my beliefs on you. The idea that the Bible is the objective, authoritative word of God is now outdated in our culture. Now, as an aside, this whole idea that truth is personal, individual, and subjective fails the logic test. We're saying there's no such thing as truth, and we're sure of it. No such thing as absolute truth, and we're absolutely sure of that. It fails the practical test. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, does that make the Holocaust just Hitler's truth or 9-11 Al-Qaeda's truth? The way we respond to this, as I say in the book, is at the point of relevance. When I show you the relevance of biblical truth in my life, you'll be attracted to that relevance in your life. You'll consider my truth as your truth, and that's how you will meet the truth, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, this first earthquake that denies biblical truth is really foundational, causative in some ways to all the others. The second Earthquake, underwater cultural earthquake, is a denial of biblical morality. So for that, we go back to the 1960s and the so-called uh, sexual revolution. You could really go back to 1953 and Hugh Hefner and Playboy. 1960, when birth control becomes legal and now couples can have sexual relations without fear of pregnancy. You're thinking about uh, Woodstock in the 60s. 1969, the Stonewall riots and the beginning of LGBTQ activism. That starts at normalizing same-sex uh, behavior. You would see that with Will and Grace and popular culture, then to legalizing, ultimately 2015, the Obergefell decision, legalizing same-sex marriage. Now we're in the phase of stigmatizing those who disagree as homophobic and bigoted and prejudiced, and we're considering criminalizing. The so-called Equality Act is an example of that, which would criminalize, as it were, those who disagree on biblical grounds. So we're at a place now where we've decided biblical truth is outdated and biblical morality is intolerant. If you disagree with what the culture believes, then your faith is intolerant in a culture that thinks that tolerance is ultimately the highest truth. Used to be tolerance meant you had the right to be wrong. Now tolerance means there's no such thing as wrong. Your beliefs are just as right as mine. And if you disagree, you are intolerant. Well, the third earthquake that comes out of the first two is a denial of biblical witness. So for this, we turn to uh, not only critical theory, but critical race theory, so much in the news these days. In the book, we describe this in great detail. Uh, for this conversation, I would just say to you that critical theory, a Marxist construct, says that a majority group is always oppressive of a minority group. They got to be the majority. They got to be prosperous. They got to be empowered, whatever that is, by oppressing other groups along the way. That's Marxist theory. 
critical theory says that's how the world works. That's how society functions. Well, Christians are a majority group, white Christians especially. And so according to critical theory, we are by definition oppressors of the culture, by definition. And so there's this growing belief that uh, claiming the Bible to be the objective word of God is outdated, uh, claiming biblical morality to be true is intolerant, and that we Christians, by virtue of our witness, are oppressing oppressors of the culture. A recent survey, 47% of evangelical millennials said that sharing their faith was the improper imposition of their beliefs on others. Evangelism is oppressive by definition. Well, there's a fourth earthquake that is only now starting to become popularly seen. It's been the, in the academy for a while and on the coast. Robert George of Princeton's written about it recently. It's a rising radical secular ideology. It's a kind of a replacement religion, which says that biblical faith is dangerous, not just outdated, not just intolerant, not just oppressive, but dangerous. It claims that personal authenticity is the path to flourishing. And if you disagree on any level, your religion is not only impeding progress, but is dangerous to society. Those that are espousing this ideology would tell you that we now know that religion flies planes into buildings and causes 9-11s and clergy abuse scandals, that we now know that religion spends money on buildings instead of people and heaven instead of earth. We now know that religion is an outdated, irrelevant, superstitious mythology. Uh, the well-known atheist Richard Dawkins says, we've gotten rid of every god but one. We no longer worship the gods of Mount Olympus, Zeus, and Apollo. In his mind, worshiping Jesus is just the same as that. Christopher Hitchens, best-selling book some years ago, uh, God is Not Great, subtitled, How Religion Poisons Everything. Richard Dawkins has said, religion is a virus in the software of humanity that must be expunged. And so we're living in a moment now, living in a culture where biblical truth, biblical faith is outdated, where it's seen as intolerant, where it's oppressive, and it's even dangerous to the future of society. So-called Equality Act is one expression of this. It's already been approved by the House twice. It's before the Senate now. President Biden promises to sign it if it gets to his desk. It amends the 1964 Civil Rights Act to forbid discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And then crucially, it forbids any appeal to the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So as a practical example, let's say there's a church that has a code of biblical morality, biblical conduct that it requires of its staff. Let's say that somebody applies to work on that staff who's not living according to that code. Maybe they're transgender, they're in a same-sex marriage or something like that. And the church chooses not to employ them for those reasons. That individual files a lawsuit. A judge issues an injunction. If the church doesn't obey the injunction, somebody goes to jail. Well, the Equality Act is just an expression of a larger cultural belief that my unwillingness to do a same-sex wedding is exactly the same as if I would not do a Latino wedding or an African-American wedding. A senator, as they were talking about the Equality Act in one of the committees last year, likened my claim to have religious freedom protection for my biblical morality to somebody in the KKK claiming religious freedom protection to burn a cross in somebody's yard. In his mind, it's exactly the same. Well, it's not just the Equality Act. There's a thing called the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, 
which has filed a lawsuit against more than 20 Christian colleges claiming, and they would represent 200 colleges, claiming that they are discriminatory against LGBTQ individuals by virtue of their biblical morality and therefore ought to be denied all federal aid for student scholarships. $4 billion in student aid would be in question. We're thinking about more than 400 companies that have signed on to support the Equality Act. Last uh, June, during Pride Month, we saw Pride-themed cereal boxes and uh, Nickelodeon children's programming, and we're seeing drag queens doing uh, story hours in public libraries. Uh, this consensual movement forward that's claiming that biblical morality is outdated, intolerant, oppressive, and dangerous. So what do we do about this? What's the good news? Well, if we've been men of Issachar, trying to understand the times and therefore to know what Israel ought to do, what should we do? To that point, let's pivot. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now there abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I believe that those three values are our way forward, that those three values empower us as we move forward into this culture in a way that honors the Lord and advances his kingdom to the common good. So let's talk about faith for just a moment. In the Bible, Jesus began his public ministry by announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught us to seek first the kingdom of God. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. When he returns, his name will be King of kings and Lord of lords. All through the Bible, God is a king. Not the kind of kingdom we think about today, kind of a symbolic monarchy, but uh, the kind of kingdom where the king is in charge every moment of every day. A Roman Empire king, a Caesar king, where in the Roman Empire, the Romans are in charge on Monday, not just Sunday. They're in charge of every dimension of your life. If you're living in a true kingdom, then you're wearing the king's clothes. You're breathing his air. You're sitting in his chair if you're sitting down right now. That's the kind of kingdom Jesus has in mind. Well, I would say that in the Bible, God's a king. In our culture, God's a hobby. In our culture, we've separated Sunday from Monday and spiritual from secular and religion from the real world. In our culture, we think that if we go to church on Sunday, God will bless us on Monday. We have a transactional religion when God's calling us to a transformational relationship. In our culture, we think that if we have a quiet time at the start of the day, God will bless our day. Give a little bit of money so God will bless our money. Well, that's Greco-Roman transactional religion. Sacrifice on the altar so the God will bless your crops. Sacrifice to the God of war if you're going to war. It's how a lot of us look at religion, unfortunately, in our culture. Rather than God as hobby, let's make God our king again. Let's have faith in God as our king. Let's start every single day by getting alone with our king. Ephesians 5.18 calls us to be filled with the Spirit. That means to be controlled by the Spirit, to be empowered by the Spirit. Let me urge you to start every day by getting alone with your king. Kneel at his throne. Get off the throne of your heart. Say to Jesus, I enthrone you today. Say to the Holy Spirit, I ask you to empower me and control me today. Ask the Lord to bring to your mind anything you need to confess and confess what comes to your thoughts. And then literally ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and control you today. Pray through your day and surrender it to the Holy Spirit. Then as you go through the day, stay surrendered to your king. As you have an opportunity, you pray about it. A challenge, you pray about it. Face a temptation, you pray about that. If you fall to temptation, you ask the Lord to forgive you and cleanse you and restore you. And uh, you get back to, to the king. You put the king back on the throne. Walk through the day with your faith in Christ as king, and he will empower you in ways you can't imagine. He will give you words to say. He'll give you compassion 
for our lost culture. He will guide you in ways you couldn't imagine being guided and use you in ways you couldn't imagine being used. Uh, for North Whitehead says, great people plant trees they'll never sit under. You'll be doing that. You'll be making an impact on your culture for the kingdom. James Davison Hunter, the great sociologist, says, culture changes top down. Achieve your highest place of influence and live there faithfully. He calls it manifesting faithful presence. That's what it is to be salt and light. That's what it is to get out of the salt shaker, get your light out from under the bushel basket. Every single day, surrender your life to Christ as your king. Every single day, ask God to use you as salt and light where you have influence. And God will answer that prayer and he will use you to make a tsunami of opposition into a tsunami of opportunity. A rising tide of opposition into a rising tide of spiritual awakening. He will do that if you'll ask him to. So our faith is in Christ our King. Our hope is in spiritual awakening. There have been four great awakenings in American history. 1734, 1792, 1858, 1904, and 5. An awakening doesn't just change a life or a church or a community. It changes an entire culture. For instance, when the Fourth Great Awakening broke out in Wales before it came to the United States, saloons went out of business. Uh, police made barbershop quartets to sing in churches because they had no one to arrest. The coal mines shut down for a time because the coal miners all got converted, stopped using obscene language, and the mules could no longer understand their commands. That's an awakening. An awakening changes the world. We're seeing a Fifth Great Awakening right now in the world. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 15 years than the previous 15 centuries, many of them after seeing visions and dreams of Jesus. I met a woman in Bangladesh. A remarkable story. Her father had died back some time before. The next night, her father appeared to her in a dream, showed her the face of an American she'd never met, speaking in her village, urged her to go find him because he had a message she needed to hear. So the next day she got up, she found the American. He's actually a friend of mine, a businessman, lives in our community, loves Bangladesh, goes there quite often. The man in her dream, the face in her dream, walks up to him, says, I'm here. What message do you have? He didn't know what she was talking about. She shared the story. He shared the gospel. She came to faith in Christ. She went home and brought her son and daughter. They came to faith in Christ. I met her in Bangladesh. In Egypt, so many Muslims are seeing visions and dreams of Jesus in a white robe. The Christians are taking out billboards saying, if you've seen the man in white, call this number. Thousands coming to faith in Christ. I'm reading that 28,000 are coming to Christ every day in sub-Saharan Africa. When I was in Beijing some years ago, a missionary there thought maybe 100,000 a day in the underground church coming to Christ. I've been to Cuba 10 times over the years. It's been reported that more than a million Cubans have come to Christ in the last 10 years. God's on the march. God's on the move. We're seeing an awakening wherever people are making Christ their king. We're not seeing that in our culture because, as I said, in our culture, he's a hobby. If we'll make God our king and pray for spiritual awakening, God will answer that prayer. Desperation is always essential before awakening. Let's turn the desperation of this tsunami, the desperation of this rising opposition into an opportunity to pray every day for the spiritual awakening we need so desperately and say to the Lord, let it begin with me. Gypsy Smith, a great evangelist of a previous generation, was asked how revival begins. He said, go home, get a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself, get on your knees, Pray till everything inside that circle is right with God, and revival will be upon us. Let me urge you to take some chalk with you today. Let me urge you to pray for awakening to start with you. Our faith is in God our King. Our hope 
is in a spiritual awakening that would absolutely transform our culture and turn the tsunami of obstacle into a tsunami of opportunity. And then our love is God's love expressed through us as we speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 is our mantra for these days, as we are speaking the truth in love, as we are loving our culture with God's love, as we are sharing God's grace through our compassion, as we are beggars helping beggars find bread. At this point, you and I need to resist a temptation. As we're finding this rising tsunami against us, it becomes easy to become bitter and resentful, to see the other as the enemy, to believe that the attack on our faith is such a personal attack that we need to respond in kind when the Bible says to speak the truth in love. Those that are on the other side of this, those that are part of this tsunami of opposition are not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. They are not the enemy. The Bible says that the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. I was talking about this in a church not long ago, and I made that point that those that are on the other side are not our enemy. And a woman in the congregation said, no, they're victims. I wasn't used to people responding to a sermon like that, although she was exactly right. My friend John Stone Street says, ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. So let's see ourselves as beggars helping beggars find bread. Let's go forth with God's love and God's grace, using our influence to his glory. Let's explain that the Bible is true because it's relevant in our lives and show that relevance. Let's show that we're not intolerant in the context of sexual morality, that we're offering biblical truth because it's best for people. We're offering this not because we're homophobic, but because we love those who have same-sex attraction. We love those who are on some level part of LGBTQ activism or lifestyle. We want to share God's grace with them because God's grace has changed us. Let's show those who claim that we are oppressors that, no, we're leading the charge against racism. We're leading the charge against oppression and against all that is part of the discriminatory sin of our culture. Christians helped lead the civil rights movement of the 60s. Let's do that. Let's find ways to show that we're not cultural oppressors, that we're the answer to the oppression of the culture. To those who say religion is dangerous, let's show all the difference religion makes in our lives and in our culture. If it weren't for the church, it wouldn't have been hospitals. Most of the universities were started by churches. How can we be salt light in our own influence today? How can you and I in our own Jerusalem make a difference for the common good? What's your Acts 1-8 strategy? How would God use you to be a culture-changing Christian in your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth? What's your kingdom assignment? How will you be salt and light today? Is God calling you into a pro-life position, not just pro-birth, but pro-life? Is he calling you to work against the kind of sex trafficking that is so horrific in our culture today? Is he calling you to help make reconciliation movement across ethnic lines? Is he calling you to minister to those who are, who are poor or oppressed in some way? How are you going to make a difference today with the good news of God's love? Speaking the truth in love showing that religion isn't dangerous, religion is transformational. Well, let me close by saying what you already know. God is still on his throne. None of the surprises him. He hasn't been taking notes from this conversation today. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He redeems all that he allows. Now he wants to use us to be part of that redemption today, to pray for, work for the kind of awakening we need, beginning where we are today. There is a tsunami in our future. It's either a tsunami of opposition or a tsunami 
of opportunity. It's either a tsunami that rejects biblical truth or a tsunami of spiritual awakening, and the choice is up to us. I've mentioned 10 times being in Cuba. I'll close with an example of what the Holy Spirit can do when individuals are salt and light submitted, wanting to be part of a tsunami of awakening. So a number of years ago, a pastor there, a dear friend of mine, told me that in his community in Cuba, they've been having a rising tide, didn't call it a tsunami, but you could think of it that way, of opposition to biblical faith. Uh, Santeria witchcraft was on the ascent. Uh, dead bodies were being paraded through the streets. Drug gangs were taking over the culture. Christians were being uh, assaulted. Uh, churches were being attacked. They didn't know what to do. And so they felt led to do something very unusual. Their bell towers, the tallest point in their village in Cuba. And so one morning at the break of dawn, two church members went up to the top of that bell tower, opening the windows. One then began reading the Bible out of that bell tower over their community while the other prayed, starting at Genesis 1-1. They did that for an hour. Then two more Cuban believers went up to the bell tower and did the second hour, one reading, picking up where the first left off, reading the Bible over their town, over their community, while the second person prayed for awakening, for spiritual transformation in their community. Then two more came up and picked up where the second left off and read the Bible over their community. And then another and another till they read the entire Bible over their city, over their community. And this pastor with tears in his eyes told me, the Santeria stopped, the witchcraft stopped, the gangs left, no more bodies paraded. Revival, awakening in their community as they read and prayed the word of God over their city. Now, I'm getting chills as I tell you this. There's a day in the year, doesn't get promoted in American media, but there's a day in the year when churches all over Cuba get up to the tallest place in their church and they read and they pray the Bible over Cuba. And more than a million Cubans have come to Christ in the last 10 years. That's what the Holy Spirit can do to use his people as salt and light, transformative change agents to the glory of God. Let's join that movement. Not a tsunami of opposition, but a tsunami of opportunity. Not a tsunami that rejects God's word, but a tsunami of spiritual awakening. It will be one or the other, and the choice is ours. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray right now for all of those who have heard this conversation, that God, you would speak into their hearts and minds right now your word of hope, your word of encouragement. Help them to understand that the darker the room, the more powerful the light, that the more corrupt the culture, the more the need for salt, the more powerful the salt. And then God, show each of us how we can be salt light where we are today, how we can make you our king today, how we can be a means to the hope of awakening today, how we can speak the truth in love today. Father, may there be awakening in our culture in these desperate times. May you turn back this rising tsunami of opposition into a tsunami of opportunity for the gospel and for a fifth great awakening in this nation and in this culture. And Lord, I pray, may it begin with me. May it begin with us. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.